the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Hurley. Independent, informative, and impartial commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 20, Episode 9. The Black Sea Strategic Triangle. Talking with Rich Outson of the Atlantic Council. Our guest today is Colonel Rich Outson, retired, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council in Turkey, and a geopolitical analyst and consultant with Dragoman LLC. He joins us from his office in Virginia. Hi, Rich, and welcome back to the San Francisco Experience. Hi, Jim. It's a pleasure to be back with you, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak again. My pleasure. Rich, it's been almost a year since we last spoke. But before we launch into our discussion, please take a moment to share your background with our listeners. Great. Thanks, Jim. Well, I'm a California boy, born and raised in San Mateo County, and lived my entire very happy childhood there. Fan of the 49ers, the Warriors, and the Giants, which are prejudices that you cannot lose after the age of 10 or so, I suppose. (laughs) Went off to college in the wilds of New Hampshire at Dartmouth and did Army ROTC there. And from there, went into a very interesting career over about 30 years that took me to uh, several places in the Middle East, Iraq and Afghanistan. I spent four years in Israel and Jerusalem. I spent another four years in Turkey. And over that period of time, I became very interested in public policy, especially in foreign policy, how it was shaped. Being at the pointy end of the spear makes one very curious about how decisions are made in Washington. So when I finished my military career, after working a couple of years in the State Department, I began a PhD in public policy. And that's sort of the field I'm working in now. So I'm still living in Virginia, work with the Atlantic Council and with Jamestown Foundation and do a lot of writing and analysis on foreign policy. I think we're the greatest republic uh, in the greatest country ever. And I'm a big fan, big patriot. And yet I, I think it's deeply problematic how we make policy sometimes. So I try to focus on that, sort of the nuts and bolts of policy, contextual understanding, how we can make our country a, a wiser and a better leading force for good in the world. Mm-hmm. And Rich, you didn't mention that you're fluent in Turkish, Arabic, Hebrew, and German. Yeah, that's true. I, uh, it's an odd skill uh, that <laughs> most Americans don't, don't necessarily put a lot of emphasis on, but I love languages. I, I think the fact that we speak the world's dominant language and that Americans generally don't have as much curiosity about foreign languages means that in many cases we are an open book to the world and the world is a closed book to us. I, I think if there's one thing that I've learned over my my uh, time both working and studying about policy matters is that we would all do better uh, to learn at least one other language and to try to understand the language and the intellectual furnishings, so to speak, of the people we deal with, both our friends, by the way, and uh, our adversaries. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well, Rich, Turkey's role in the Ukraine war continues to be a significant factor weighing on all sides. How has Turkey maneuvered its position in the past year? Well, that's a great question, Jim. And I, I like to start the story a little earlier than that, only because when Washington was certainly divided and sort of not coming to grips with the approaching war in Ukraine, and I take that back to 2014 and a little bit after that, uh, when it was clear that the Russians were not going to be satisfied with what they had done in Donbass up to that point in Crimea, 
the Turks were much less conflicted about this. The Turks early on uh, signed a military agreement with Kyiv and provided lethal aid. They were providing drones. They were providing commando training. As a matter of fact, the number one, I, I think, regional ally of Ukraine in that period from uh, 2014, and especially after the signing of a military agreement between the two powers in 2017, up until the Russian invasion, was in fact uh, Turkey. Now, so to speak, the NATO and the West got religion after they understood that the Russians were serious about denying Ukrainian uh, nationhood and identity and trying to wipe them off the face of the map. Off the face of the map. But in fact, the Turks had been there, sort of providing these drones and military to military training for several years already when this all sort of broke into a, an active dumpster fire in 2021 and 2022. So the Turks are co-producing military equipment with Ukraine. They continue to do the training. They send the drones. That's the first real pole in the tent, I would say, is that the, the Turks have made clear that they stand against, at the diplomatic and military level, the erasure of Ukraine by Russia. Mm-hmm. The second pole in the tent is, is, however, somewhat contradictory to that, because the Turks have also tried to maintain correct relations, especially economic relations and diplomatic relations with Putin's Russia. Mm-hmm. They are neighbors, after all, and Russia is a primary trade partner. The EU as a collectivity is a bigger trade partner for Turkey than Russia. But as a single country, Russia is, I, I think, either number one or number two. So you're asking a country to, to turn its back on a neighbor that not only has teeth, but also has sort of very strong economic relations with Turkey, and Turkey simply won't do that. So this option that the rest of Europe had of sort of doing the full sanctions and the opprobrium and the anathematization, so to speak, of Russia, that's not Turkey's game. Turkey's game is that they will shiv the Russians under the table, so to speak, with the military aid to Ukraine, but at the same time, they're going to maintain the economic relations out of necessity. They have also actively played a role in trying to broker negotiations between the two. They've had the foreign ministers uh, of both Ukraine and Russia come to Istanbul and Antalya for talks to try to get, and this was fairly early in the war. But since that time, and in the last year, they've had also effective UN-supported but Turkish-led negotiations between Kiev and Moscow to free up grain. As you will recall, that in, uh, in the fall, that was a major uh, concern in the last summer and last fall, uh, the inability to get both Russian and Ukrainian grain out to market, not only was this damaging Ukraine's economy, but it was also threatening starvation or at least severe hunger problems for much of Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, and other countries that depend on these major world grain producers. So Turkey's role in terms of keeping an open door to both countries actually paid benefits uh, for the international community. It's not very satisfying to some in Washington, frankly, because they would like to see Turkey line up along with Poland and the United Kingdom and some of our very staunch allies that are, frankly, the, the very hard edge of Western response to the Russian invasion. But the Turkish role is a little different. Again, they, they're supporting uh, Ukraine militarily, but they occupy this middle balancing position mm-hmm. in the hopes that they can both deter and uh, prevent a Russian victory, but also keep the door open for something of a peaceful solution uh, that doesn't drive Russia into, shall we say, more erratic uh, steps. Mm-hmm. Rich, you recently wrote an article for the Hoover Institution's quarterly journal, Caravan, entitled The Black Sea Strategic Triangle. As a lead-in to our discussion, please take a moment and give us a, a geography overview about the landlocked Black Sea and why it's so important to regional peace in Eastern Europe, the Mediterranean, the Middle East, 
and the Caucasus. And after all, there are five nations that share the, that have coastlines on the Black Sea, namely Turkey, Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, Russia, and Georgia. Give us a bit of a, a geography lesson and a history lesson, if you will, about the importance of this landlocked sea that Turkey essentially controls because of the Bosporus. It's a, it's a fascinating body of water because it's, it's actually not that massive a body of water, but it's massively important in geopolitical terms. As you mentioned, the Turks have sort of the, the cork that opens into the Black Sea, if you will, because of two sets of straits, the Bosporus and the Dardanelles that run from the Aegean and, and beyond the Aegean to the Mediterranean, basically heading west to Africa, the Middle East, and to Europe, funneling all of that in through these straits to the Black Sea littoral. And in the Black Sea littoral, as you mentioned, there's the states, Russia, and then everybody else. Russia has a pretty big sort of coastline on it. They have the biggest currently because of their occupation. But preoccupation, before they seize the territory from Ukraine, Ukraine had the biggest Littoral Turkey is also very near the size of Ukraine's littoral. The real concern traditionally has been that if Russia is able to dominate all of the states or intimidate all of the states in this area, it essentially turns the Black Sea into a Russian lake. Mm -hmm. If you go far enough back in history, it was at one point a Turkish lake, uh, believe it or not, because all the countries you mentioned, including Georgia, Ukraine, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, Turkey itself and the southern uh, parts of uh, Russia were in the late 1600s, for instance, entirely under the control of the Ottoman Empire. After a series of wars, I think there were at least 12 or 14, Russia pushed that boundary further and further to the point where it was very much at risk of becoming a Russian lake. If the Black Sea becomes a Russian lake, that not only directly damages the security of Ukraine, it also threatens Romania and Bulgaria and Turkey because of the ability of the Russians to, oh, say, say, float mines against commercial shipping in the area, which they've already done during the current conflict. So Turkey has a longstanding interest in preventing that from happening and mm -hmm. keeping the Russians sort of on the east side of the lake while Turkey maintains with its partners, NATO partners, security for the western part of the lake is a is bedrock policy for the Turks. Were the Russians to successfully seize control of the Black Sea or most of it by annexing Crimea, for instance, this would greatly increase their ability to threaten Turkey. Turkey enjoys rights under international, the Montreux Convention, which I believe dates to 1936, to deny wartime shipping to any combatants uh, to and from these Turkish Straits that we've talked about, the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. However, that's clearly conditioned upon the ability of any foreign navy to threaten Turkey directly. And the Russians have done that at least once before. The Russians threatened after the Montreux Convention was signed in the 1940s as they gathered strength, the Soviets uh, gathered strength after their victory at Stalingrad. They made demands upon Turkey to put Russian bases in the Straits area and demanding that uh, Turkey break off defense relationships with Great Britain and other Western countries. So it's not without precedent to see that the Russians not only see the Black Sea as a conduit or sort of a gateway to get to the Middle East, to send their ships to Syria and to Africa and places like that, but also to directly threaten the NATO partners that are littoral states on the Black Sea. So how does Turkey operationalize this desire not to see the Russians fully in charge of the Black Sea? Mm -hmm. That was the point of the article that I wrote. And, and this is sort of a triangular approach. I, if we think just in terms of a duality between the West and Russia, a zero-sum game, black and white, Russia bad, 
West good and that the only acceptable outcome is Russian defeat and that we must fight to the last Ukrainian in order to get that. That raises certain problems in terms of conflict resolution, because frankly, the Russians still have backing from Iran. They have backing from China. They have manpower and willpower to fight. And I'm not sure it's in the interests of the West or Ukraine, certainly, to see this conflict go on for, say, a decade. If you don't have a country like Turkey that's a little that's more aligned with the West than with Russia, but a little distinct from the West because they've kept this open door, mm-hmm. then then what you have is a very dualistic Manichaean conflict that either leads to Russian collapse on the one hand or, again, potential escalation to the use of tactical nuclear weapons and all, all the other consequences that could come from having no middle ground. The Turks provide this conceptual middle ground because they're willing to talk about a peace after the war, that it has reasonable terms for Russia, but that does not reward their aggression. So in this sense, Turkey's part of a triangle diplomatically and strategically because they're the third position. If the, the synthesis or thesis, uh, antithesis and, and synthesis, right, in the great dialectical process, uh, the Turks would be the synthesis where you have a generally pro-Ukraine peace, but one that does not impose a Versailles treaty style punishment, a punitive peace that the Russians will not accept uh, upon Moscow. The second sense in which they're part of a triangle is that they've already got pre-existing, the Turks that is, pre-existing military arrangements, not only with Ukraine, which I referenced in terms of uh, these training arrangements and selling the drones and whatnot, but also very strong military agreements with Azerbaijan and with Georgia, Mm -hmm. who are also, in the case of Georgia, a littoral state on the Black Sea, but in the case of Azerbaijan, very much a part of the strategic calculus in the region because they are part of the Caucasus, right? So this conflict between Russia and the West also extends into the Caucasus region. Because Turkey has trained Georgian and Ukrainian and Azerbaijani officers at their war colleges because they have defense industrial relationships with them, they actually have a hard power deterrent to the Russians from pushing south in the Caucasus or directly against Turkey in the Black Sea. That's one strong leg of a triad that includes Ukraine itself, Turkey and the other allies of Turkey in the Black Sea, and then NATO. That is a a strategic triangle that, in my view, the Russians cannot defeat Mm -hmm. in the long term. And it's important that the West keep the Turkish part of that triangle on side. As I was reading through your article, of course, we're a long way from peace negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. However, as I read through your article, you talked about the possibility at some point of the areas that Russia has occupied up to this point, perhaps the contours of, uh, of a peace agreement might provide for the neutralization of those parts of Ukraine that Russia has actually occupied and that those easternmost regions of Ukraine would then be policed, if you will, by Turks or other independent uh, observers, uh, UN forces, etc. Did I understand that correct as a, as, a, as a possible compromise between ending the war so that, that there would be sort of a, a neutral buffer zone created from some Ukrainian soil between Ukraine proper, Russia, and then this demilitarized section of Ukraine. Did I understand that correctly, Rich? Uh, yes, you did, Jim. I, and I don't consider this too formal or polished a proposal. It's, it's not that at this point. But look, we were trying to identify a conceptual space that could lead to an agreement both sides could sign on to. We know the Ukrainians will not cede sovereignty over their national territory. 
certainly not in Crimea. Uh, it, for the Russians to stay in Crimea and also in uh, Melitopol and Mariupol and these areas on the southern uh, area, uh, the southern coast of, of Ukraine, would be a dagger continually pointed at Kiev. There's no way that the Ukrainians will willingly sign a peace agreement that allows that. So the Russian forces in Ukrainian eyes are going to have to leave those areas. And mm-hmm. frankly, that, that includes Crimea. In Russian eyes, at least what they've cited as their casus belli uh, since the beginning of this war and prior, has been the fear of the extension of NATO forces or what they consider to be Nazi Ukrainian forces right up to, to, to the border of Russian territory. So conceptually, that does leave space where these areas, the, if Russian forces were to leave under the terms of the peace agreement, could be demilitarized and demilitarized in that there'd be no Russian forces there. But Ukraine would also agree within the limits of its sovereignty. I mean, it's a sovereign country and these would be recognized and confirmed as part of its sovereign territory would agree not to deploy military forces to these areas. Instead of military forces in those areas, what you'd have is patrols based or comprised of forces from countries that both sides find acceptable. And frankly, Turkey comes number one there. Turkey has done such missions in Lebanon as part of UNIFIL. It's done so uh, in as part of the NATO mission in Afghanistan. And the ability of Turkish troops and uh, some combination of other troops, uh, I don't know which country specifically we, we'd go to, but it would have to be something that would be agreed to by both Kiev and Moscow, would have some sort of a very lightly armed force that would patrol and make sure that neither side was threatening the other. This is standard peacemaking strategy when there's co- a disputed territory. But this would also have to happen only after Russia had been disabused of the notion that it might actually win. So I'm not sure that we're there yet. I, I think we, the Russians you know, are, are still intent on fighting this fight for now, I think because it's a war of choice for Russia, whereas it is a war of national survival for Ukraine. I mm-hmm. do think the Russians will blink first, ultimately. And when they do, there has to be some, at least some constructive proposals that they might not dismiss out of hand. And I think the Turks are going to be key in that. This is one example of how that might be operationalized. Mm-hmm. Now, when Xi Jinping was in Moscow a couple of weeks ago, he made noises about um, you know trying to reach out to Ukraine. He and I believe the Ukrainian president even considered some kind of a telephone call. I don't know that that's happened. I don't think it's happened. Where do we stand as regards China being a an intermediary between Ukraine and Russia. Is that likely to happen or just much too early at this point? Well, I don't think China's well positioned to do it because they are so firmly backing, certainly in the economic and diplomatic sense, Russia. I I think uh, Xi is probably disappointed that the Russians have gotten into a sticky situation, so to speak. And they've made, they've, you know, voiced Xi and, and Beijing have voiced some sympathy for Ukraine and tried to play equidistant. But in fact, by remaining staunchly in the corner of Russia in terms of keeping its economy afloat and staying out of any sanctions business, they've made it clear that they're not going to cross Russia or uh, sort of try to punish Moscow for its aggressive war. The other thing is that Ukraine is so thoroughly and entirely uh, dependent, frankly, on external support from the West in this war that affording China place of pride in terms of the conflict resolution would not only kind of sell the farm to the Russians, but it also be a slap in the face to the West. Whoever's going to, in the end, be critical and pivotal negotiators for the peace that ultimately comes has to have some leverage and some traction with both sides. I just don't see that China has that with Ukraine 
because mm-hmm. of its siding with Russia and because of uh, the fact that the, the West, again, is really who is in the corner of Ukraine and they're not going to smile upon that. And it's not that Turkey can do the job by itself. Again, I don't mean to suggest that, but I think what we saw with the grain deal is actually not a bad template where the UN is formally sponsoring, adopting and put its weight, putting its weight behind negotiations. But the key moving part between Kiev and Moscow is the Turks. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the parties, eventually when we do get to peace negotiations, one of the parties that's going to be sitting at that conference table is going to be NATO. Of the five countries that you mentioned that are on the uh, the littoral of the Black Sea, Turkey, Romania, and Bulgaria, they'll, they're full-fledged members of, of uh, NATO. Of course, Georgia and Ukraine are not full-fledged members but they do have some cooperation, cooperative agreements, don't they, with uh, with NATO without being full-fledged members? That's right. So you would you'd agree that there will be some role for NATO at that conference, that peace conference, when eventually it comes uh, comes to pass, because five of the three of the three of the five littoral states are members. Well, remember, NATO is a military alliance, so it's not technically a diplomatic coalition. I think the member member uh, countries of NATO will certainly, you know, Germany and and France, the United States and Turkey will all play some role in the negotiations. But I would not see because, frankly, they don't have a large diplomatic corps. They don't they don't do this sort of business, right? NATO as an organization simply doesn't do the negotiations to to end conflicts sort of business. But its member states do. So I, I guess the answer to your question is. NATO's interests will be represented by its member states that are mm. involved. If NATO itself were to be involved with negotiations, I think that would make it less likely that the Russians would agree to anything. Because again, at the end of the day, they viewed this as an act of NATO. You know, they say they're responding to NATO aggression, which is obviously fabulous and untrue. But their domestic audience believes that they're fighting a proxy war with the United States. So I think they expect to see the United States at the peace table or represented the peace table in some way, they'd probably feel like the Turks were a friend in court or at least partially, mm-hmm. or maybe perhaps an honest broker of sorts. And then I would think the UN rather than NATO per se would be the sort of the diplomatic framework. But for them, NATO is sort of the bad guy, right? So I, I don't think that they would accept the NATO as an interlocutor as such, even though due to force majeure in their view, they would they would have to accept the United States. I misspoke when I said that there are five littoral states in the Black Sea. There are six, and the six again are Turkey, Bulgaria, Romania, that are members of NATO, Ukraine, Georgia, which are not members of NATO, but friendly towards NATO, and number six, Russia. So there are actually six littoral states. Let's move on to elections, because we've got two important elections that are coming up. Next month, May, 2023, Turkey will have both a presidential election and parliamentary elections, which I'd like to discuss. And then secondly, don't forget, in 2024, Vladimir Putin is up for re-election in 2024. So let's talk about the dynamics of, of elections during wartime, both in Turkey and in Russia. Let's start with Turkey. What is the state of play for the presidential elections in Turkey? There are two or three significant candidates who, of course, the incumbent, Erdogan. Tell us about the state of play for the Turkish presidential elections at this point. Sure. Well, so Erdogan has not had a serious challenge in terms of a presidential election since Turkey went to the presidential system, which is fairly recent. They traditionally have had a, a fairly weak president and 
uh, governance primarily through the prime minister, who was a sort of elected by the, the parliament. And that all changed a couple of years ago when they went to a presidential system. Erdogan was elected as the first directly elected president and handily defeated his opponents. Uh, but I guess more to the point, even in the uh, prime minister, not prime ministerial, but the parliamentary elections, his party is facing much bigger headwinds since they have over the past 10 or 15 years. Now, the elections that are going to occur will include both parliament and direct election of the president as well. For Erdogan personally, he's facing two primary opposition candidates, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, who is the leader of the Republican People's Party, or CHP, the Turkish acronym. But more importantly, that candidate, Kılıçdaroğlu, presides over an electoral coalition that includes five other uh, fairly large opposition parties. It's the most united that the anti-Erdogan opposition has been in two decades. Mm -hmm. There is a third candidate, Muharrem Ince, who had previously run against Erdogan and sort of, I guess, represents those people who don't like Kılıçdaroğlu and don't like Erdogan either. And he is currently polling at about 9%. Hmm. If no candidate wins an outright majority, then there'll be a runoff. So essentially what NJ has done has made it less likely that the opposition candidate, who's polling higher than Erdogan right now, uh, will win hmm. outright in the first round. If NJ had not run, it was possible, it was plausible that the opponents or that the opposition candidate, Kılıç Darolu, could have won in the first round. But it looks like that will go to a runoff as a result of the fact that Inge decided to run. Now, in terms of the parliamentary dynamics, polling is, is not exactly all over the place, but it's quite changeable. I think right now it looks like the parties are pretty evenly split. I've heard it described as a knife edge. One important dynamic is that the leftist Kurdish vote, which is represented by the HDP party, uh, that has some sympathy for the Ojalan movement, you know, aligned with the PKK, which is considered by the U.S. as well as Turkey to be a terror organization, but has some political adherence in Turkey. They have declined to run an independent candidate or uh, an independent list. I, I have to check that one, actually, on, um, on whether they're running an independent list for parliament. But certainly they've said no uh, independent presidential candidate. That essentially says they're doing they're going all in to defeat Erdogan. The parliament's going to be mixed. Nobody's going to have an overwhelming majority in it. I think that will be interesting to watch, but more determinative for foreign policy will be who wins this presidential race. And I think right now there is a better chance than there has been in 20 years that Erdogan loses. Hmm. Tell me, is there uh, in the presidential campaign, in the parliamentary campaign, is Turkey's support for Ukraine and the Ukraine war, is that being debated or are all three presidential candidates in agreement that Turkey has to support Ukraine and can't let Russia win? So there is broad consensus across the political spectrum that's reflected in the, uh, the statements during the campaigns that Turkey's doing the right thing by taking a balanced position that both militarily supports Ukraine, but diplomatically tries to balance with Russia. That is actually not a sort of point of criticism for the opposition against Erdogan. Hmm. I think the opposition has skewered Erdogan far more on his policy with regards to Syria, where they think he, he got in over his head and sort of engaged in some adventurist policies and maybe too beholden to the Syrian armed opposition. I think that Ukraine policy is not likely to change regardless of who wins. Okay. I think if we see the opposition win, there could be some changes in Turkey's Syria policy. Bottom line is, I, I think that when it comes to Black Sea security, both because of the sympathy for Ukraine, concerns about Russia's 
hegemonic ambitions, and also because there's a ton of natural gas that Turkey has been discovering in the Black Sea. Mm. This is a point of broad consensus in the Turkish political spectrum, that, that they should do everything they can to keep Russia from being the ultimate winner of this war. Mm-hmm. Now, just moving on to Russia, of course, we're here to talk about Turkey, the Black Sea, but of course, 2024, Putin has an election on his hands. Any thoughts about how the how that election might unfold, who his opponent might be? Could the election, could, could the elections be suspended? Any thoughts, any speculation about the 2024 re-election of Putin, if that even happens? Well, I think, you know, the Russian electoral system is far less grounded in democratic traditions than that of the Turks. And the Turks, frankly, are far less opaque. The Russians think it's hard to trust any of the statistics, any of the polling, and harder to read sort of the tea leaves with regards to the Russian election. The the Turks have been faulted for the undemocratic practices of those in power. But in terms of elections to get you into power, very few people debate that those are they had the democratic muscle memory is still intact there and that's just never been the case for russia so i am not nearly as well versed with the russian electoral prospects and system as with the turkish but what what i would say is that if this war continues badly for the russians that the chances of uh, putin surviving to the election are probably or let, let's say the chances of uh, putin being removed by non-electoral means are probably greater than him actually losing in an election. Because I, I just don't think that the apparatus of power, if he's still atop it, will allow him to lose the election. Mm-hmm. Well, Rich, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts about Turkey, Ukraine, and the Black Sea? It's an interesting area that the United States pays fairly limited attention to. And the Black Sea is always an afterthought, right? So the Black Sea The West is conceptualized, and then Washington is frequently conceptualized as a seam zone between Europe and Asia, as sort of a problem area, as a non-functional boundary, so to speak. It's very seldom thought of as a functioning regional system, but it it should be. I mean, we talk about cooperation in the Mediterranean. The U.S. diplomacy has, has taken moves to try to increase energy cooperation among people in the countries and our friends in the Mediterranean. We've also done this in the Gulf, and we've also done this in the Far East with regards to the AUKUS and the Quad, right? So it's pretty interesting that it's very much an afterthought when it comes to the Black Sea. We think of it as a problem. We think of it as a seam zone, a border. We don't think of it as a functioning system that needs to be sort of nurtured and incentivized. And only when it became a big problem did it become riveting for Washington. And I, I would just hope that as this war, and it may drag on for who knows a, a couple years more, but when it does ultimately yield to peace, we need to make better investments in the, the cooperation among the people in this area, and the, the countries, and especially our friends in this area. The the Turks I don't mean to to beat their drum too much on this, but they have tried to through something called Seabrig, the Southeast European Brigade, which is something that sort of a multilateral defense unit they tried to put together a few years ago and to have exercises for. And through the the Black Sea Cooperation Organization, they have tried for roughly 20 years or even more than that to try to spark some sort of cooperation with Romania, with Bulgaria, Turkey. Now, of course, for the Turks, they want to see themselves in the lead. So the question for the United States is, are we interested in and able to support our friends organizing themselves rather than being the, the director of the band, so to speak? I'd like to see that develop more. There's lots of energy resources in that region. There's gas pipelines coming through Turkey, including 
in the Black Sea that currently are carrying Russian gas. I'd like to see the United States and its other friends, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, and so forth, get more involved in pressing quantities of natural gas through Turkey and through these pipelines that avoid Russia and mm-hmm. get to Europe and increase energy security for the rest. I don't think we've been terribly creative in that regard. Now, we can't just leave it to Turkey. Turkey's following its national interests, not ours. But I think that realizing that because of Turkish geography and because of its fairly adroit uh, military and diplomatic moves, that they do have a say in that area. They, they can be on side with us and they can be a fairly useful ally in that regard. Ultimately, this view that Russia has, that the Ukraine is not a legitimate state and that they need to wipe out its existence for their own national destiny to be met is clearly madness. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, that if I have any good news from Washington <laughs> over the last four or five years in an era of great polarization, it's that there is broad bipartisan consensus on that. And uh, frankly, I'm very pleased to see that. We need to see the course on it. Uh, you know, I, I tend to be on the conservative side of issues myself. I do hope that the conservatives make the case within the Republican Party and elsewhere that, look, this, this is not some far-off war that does not concern us and is not worth the bones of a Pomeranian grenadier, to, to paraphrase Bismarck. This is actually something that will directly impact our economic interests, our diplomatic interests, our energy interests, and we need to maintain the strong support that we've been providing to Ukraine. I, I think that that's critically important. And Rich, how can our listeners follow you? Well, I'm uh, I'm on Twitter, at Rich Outson. And I also write for the Atlantic Council and for Jamestown Foundation. So if you peruse their pages uh, from time to time, you'll, you'll see some of what I write. I'll be uh, defending my dissertation on uh, U.S. coercive diplomacy uh, coming up uh, later this, this month and hope to get that published later in the year. So hopefully by then you, you can uh, have me back on for another chat so I can plug it. Absolutely. When do you think, uh, <laughs> when, when do you think that'll be published, Rich? Well, let me find a publisher first. And then I'll put you. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, good luck in your defense of the uh, dissertation. I'm sure you won't need it. We very much appreciate you having joined us today. As always, very clear, crisp, very well-informed positions on a part of the world where, that most Americans don't really know that well. So once again, thank you very much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Jim. Thank you. And for our listeners... Today's episode is number 395, as the San Francisco experience continues to mark our third anniversary. Listen to us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, 19 platforms in total, and join our audience that spans 65 countries by subscribing. This has been the San Francisco Experience, with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. <laughs>